0: Well, again, good morning. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, where we exist to know Jesus and to make Him known. And, uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, in fact, pretty much everyone in the church is watching virtually here today. But I would still love to invite you, if you're watching for the first time, or you want to find out a little bit more about our church, that you would text, uh, connect to the number that's up on your screen there. Uh, but we are glad to have you. And as Tommy said, we're really thankful that even in the midst of a winter storm, we're able to Um, uh, gather together, even if it is virtually to worship the one true God. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 27 as we uh, continue to walk through this uh, sermon series on uh, looking at the stories that Jesus told. And so as we jump in this morning, uh, I want to, uh, so this sort of weather and this time of year where uh, we're inside a lot, it's kind of dark, it's cold, I don't like the cold weather Uh, very much, but uh, the other day I was reflecting on a warmer time uh, back in the fall where um, my friend Todd Hill, uh, he's the director of congregational care here, uh, we had walked through just a long season of challenging situations in ministry. We were walking through a season of grief and uh, he looked at me one day and he's like, hey, let's go out on a boat. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. And so he uh, invited me up to Beltsville Lake uh, or Beltsville Recreational Area and so I drove up there, and he had been out on the uh, lake for a couple hours before I arrived. And uh, when he came by the dock to pick me up, he said, "Hey, uh, we're going out, but you know what I did? I lost my anchor earlier." I was like, "Well, that's fine. You know, we can float around, and it has a engine on it, and we'll be fine." So we did. We floated around for a little bit, and um, we eventually got to a place where we're like, "What do you want to do?" And we just decided to to stop, turn off the motor, and, and just sit there and, and talk. And so. Uh, we drove up to the edge of the dam. There's a big dam right there, and so uh, we drove up. He turned off the motor, and we just uh, sat back and and we talked for like an hour and fifteen minutes. We talked about you know how we met our wives, and uh, we uh, looked back with the at the fond memories uh, of our friend Jacob Lee, who had recently passed, and we laughed, and it was just such a sweet time. But then eventually, Todd stood up and he said, "Oh." We're getting a little close to land, so I need to, you know, know, get us away from the shoreline. And so when he said that, I looked up and I realized on the horizon was the dam that was about that big, whereas it was huge just an hour earlier. And I didn't realize that we had floated across the lake at this point. Todd was aware of it the entire time. In fact, he strategically turned off the engine where he turned it off and knew where the wind was blowing and knew we had some time where we could sit and chat. So really, that day, there were two approaches to boating. Uh, there was my approach, which uh, was that of just totally being unaware and drifting and unaware of the forces and, and how, uh, how the forces were acting upon us and moving us in a direction. But then there was Todd, who was aware of the forces acting on us and the choices that he was actually actively making when I was making none. And so as I thought about that this week, I thought about how that is often two approaches that we may take to the Christian life. You have the me approach that I had that day in the boat, where uh, I was falsely believing that I could simply drift through uh, that time, and sometimes we believe we can drift through the Christian life and still actually be following Jesus. Forget about choices to make, about the paths we take and the voices we listen to. I fail to believe that obedience uh, to Jesus Christ is not optional. Oftentimes we think we can build our lives on anything we wish and not have any consequences. We just simply drift along. But I think what Todd was picturing a picture of that day is is this reality of being aware that the Christian life actually requires choices. Choices to follow Jesus. And that there are constantly forces working against us that pull us away from Him. And so as we jump into this story, again, uh, we're looking at the various stories Jesus told, so we're popping around a little bit throughout the book of Matthew, but uh, where we started last week was his first story or his first illustration there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Many would uh, call that one of his greatest teachings on what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. It begins with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the merciful, and the peacemaker, and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's really talking about the inner working of the Christ follower. But then it moves to what uh, the first illustration we talked about last week, where Jesus says, hey, as you move out as my followers into the world around you, I want you to be salt and light. Well, today we're actually jumping over most of the Sermon on the Mountain, coming to the very end Of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And and as we do, I want to start us off by talking about what kind of came in the middle because we missed a lot, right? We missed a ton of Jesus' teaching. And and I would just encourage you to go back and just sit in the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself, what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? But let me give you just four principles to understand about the Sermon on the Mount uh, as we really jump into the very end of it today. First, is that discipleship, or following Jesus, begins with grace. Remember how Jesus began his sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit meaning we are totally reliant upon someone else spiritually. And there, it's talking about the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that comes just before the text we're looking at today, is that Jesus wants us to keep our eyes on our own hearts. Just before our passage, verses 7, 1 to 11, uh, Jesus is saying, hey, instead of starting off by judging others, he's saying, examine yourself first. Take the log out of your own eye. And then, right after that, he says, and hey, uh, the standards of the Sermon on the Mount and the standards of God's law, we are actually never able to totally accomplish. And so, you need to ask and seek and knock and, and ask me for the ability to be obedient and keep my law. Here's the other thing I want us to see is that Christ is central in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the keys to understanding what Jesus is saying is in 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them or do away with them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I am the one who can perfectly keep it. And then he later on goes to say that that's good news because he says, hey, unless you keep the law better than the Pharisees and and the scribes, who are the ones who... um, were the best, at least in that culture, they thought at keeping the law. I said, unless your obedience surpasses them, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's essentially saying there is, follow me. In the context of the book of Matthew is, is Jesus saying, the law that I give you, I actually came to pay a ransom for those who couldn't keep it. But in all that talk of grace, the thing I want us to sit in today, which may be a challenge for us, is this reality that at the end of this book, What Jesus says through his stories is the Christian life and following Jesus requires choices. There are four pairings that come here at the end of the book uh, where he basically says there's a choice between this and this, and he gives those four stories, and so that's where we're going to jump in today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read the first choice to you, and this is a choice in paths, a choice in paths. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus teaches this. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so here's the picture I want you to think about as we talk about two paths, okay? Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, hey, as you follow me, you are going to be in a state of continual choices between two paths. Three observations, and we're going to do a survey and move pretty quickly through each of these pictures that Jesus gives. But here's three observations about what he says here about, these three, about the path that leads to life or that leads to Jesus. The first thing he says is it's difficult. God's way is often hard, but it leads to life. You'll see it here in the text in verse 13. It says, uh, the gate that leads to destruction is actually easy, but the one that leads to life is difficult. Now, for some of us, we're like, wow, that's a great start, Anthony. Following Jesus is hard. Sign me up, right? Uh, Well, that's sometimes what we may think, but if we're honest with ourselves and if we look in the culture around us, this is actually not a foreign concept. Consider the Super Bowl that you're going to watch later tonight. 43-year-old Tom Brady did not get to his, like, 100th Super Bowl by doing the easy things, right? It's been hard for him to keep up the stamina and be able to do what he's done over the course of these years, and it's paid off. Those of you who have uh, your M.D., right? You're going to medical school. Uh, If you are a doctor, you realize, hey, that hard work paid off. And so this isn't a foreign concept that Jesus is telling his disciples, but he is saying, know that choosing the path to follow me is going to be hard. The second thing we need to notice is there's discernment that needs to happen. Jesus is saying, be careful how we discern whether or not we're on the right path. First of all, going back to the previous point, our culture would say if it's not easy, it may not be the right path, right? The the path of least resistance is where we're going to go. But here's the other observation we can make here, is that God's ways cannot be found by appealing to the masses. The road that leads to destruction is the road that the most are on in this picture that Jesus is painting. Another indicator, uh, or not indicator, but something that we need to be careful of as well, is that pleasing people can never be the litmus test as to whether or not we're on the right path. Again, because uh, appealing to the masses uh, is never the way to discern God's ways. Here's the third thing we need to understand is this idea of destination here. The end is not the path itself. The end is the ultimate significance. The gate where you, where you arrive is the ultimate significance, not necessarily the path that you're on here. So he's saying, hey, if you're going to be my followers, keep your eyes at the end, on the destination, not on the difficulty of the path that you're on. All right, here's the second choice that we see uh, Jesus calling his followers to make, and it's the choice in voice. Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Jesus says this. Here's the second uh, pair that he describes. He says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Um, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. All right, so for this next uh, this next picture uh, of, of um, a choice in voice, he has this illustration of two trees. Two trees. And you'll notice he said uh, a thorn bush and grapes, right? So let me uh, tell you exactly what he's getting at here. Here's a picture uh, before you of two trees, or the fruit of two different plants. One is a buckthorn, uh, and the other is a grapevine. So these were two um, two different types of plants that could have, could be confused in Jesus' day. The fruit looks very similar, right? But you'll know eventually if you've picked the fruit of the right tree uh, when you go to make wine with it. And so uh, they're very similar, but but he's saying, hey, you will know if it's the right tree by its fruit. The other picture he says is that of thistles, uh, and a fig tree. And thistles and fig trees actually had very similar blossoms. So here's what he's saying here, and this is, uh, and, and the reason why I said a choice in voice is because of this. It starts off not necessarily talking about trees, but talking about prophets. He says, beware. As you're following me, beware of false prophets. He's saying, beware of who you're listening to. A prophet is a person who is speaking for someone else. And in this situation, it's a person who is claiming to be the voice of God. As we study God's word all the way back to the Old Testament, we see that God's people are constantly plagued with false voices claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in Matthew 24. Jesus says, False prophets will arise and lead many astray. We also see Paul as he's departing Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He's saying, hey, elders of Ephesus, gather around, beware. There are ravenous wolves who are going to come up from your midst and want to take away the sheep. Second Peter chapter 2 warns uh, of those within the church who will deny God and lead others astray. And so, friends, one of the things that Jesus is warning against is saying, hey, beware as you follow me. There will always, until I return, be false prophets in your midst. And and the second thing that his illustration does is it is teaching them to perceive. Perceive uh, when a prophet is a false one, when a voice that we're listening to is one that is contrary to God and his word. And the reason or the way he gives them to discern this is their fruit. Now for those who are sitting there on um, uh, there at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach, they're probably thinking, okay, the fruit, their fruit is something different From what we've been taught thus far. And so some ideas of what false voices would be is, yes, probably the easiest one where we would all default to is if they're teaching something contrary to God's law, because that's what Jesus was just doing. He's teaching about murder. He's teaching about sexuality. He's teaching about uh, things like prayer and devotion to God. And so if somebody's teaching something different than what God's Word says, then yes, the fruit of their words is going to be that which leads to destruction. But that's usually our default is to go to the, kind of that outward working fruit. But even Jesus in the Sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the interior life of the person of the follower of Jesus. He doesn't start with the external. So here's something else that a false prophet uh, may never do or may never teach relative to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain and the Beatitudes. They will probably never teach that which fosters poverty of spirit. It will probably not teach uh, in a way that makes people search their hearts and cry out to God for mercy when they realize they can't keep his law. They would likely teach uh, nothing or nothing would come from them uh, that teaches that our righteousness and our conduct in the world around us might actually lead to persecution. The persecution isn't a fruit of doing something wrong. It might actually be an identifier of us following after Christ. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, false teachers would likely have no interest in being salt and light. They would likely not be one who relies on Jesus to fulfill the law, who allows their anger to run amok, who doesn't live internally and externally by a biblical ethic of sex and marriage. It could be someone who retaliates, who hates their enemies, who aren't generous, who doesn't pray, who's materialistic, who's never resting in God, or who is always judgmental. Friends, that's everything that Jesus just taught up to this moment. But we can't just stop in the book of Matthew. We go beyond to Paul where he teaches on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, where he says, hey, the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. We have a choice in the voices we listen to. There's a third choice. There's a choice of obedience. Matthew five twenty-one to 23 He goes on and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see here, the two things that are uh, not so overt in this situation are two different claims. Many of the people sitting before Jesus are claiming, Lord, Lord, I'm following you, Jesus. But he's saying, there are some who make this claim who I will in the end say, I never knew you. Romans 10, 9 can give us a good paradigm of what's going on here, where Paul writes, if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will have eternal life. And so there's a picture of two things happening. First, there is a profession from our mouths, Lord, Lord, that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. And in this situation, they're actually getting the profession part right. He says, not everyone who says Lord, Lord. You see, the first thing I want us to see is, is that these are likely the religious. The religious. You see, they're polite. They're calling them Lord, a proper title. They're orthodox, right? Jesus is Lord. They're fervent in their declaration. Lord, Lord in the Greek is, is very clearly um, a, a repeat for emphasis. And then it's very public. This is a public profession of faith. But what does Jesus say? He's saying, "But but some will do that. Some will nail all the all the proper orthodox polite um uh, intricacies, right, of the faith but totally miss me altogether where God doesn't even know them." How can that be? I mean, this has to be confusing. I mean, did you did you see what it says about these people? They were prophesying in your name. They were doing mighty works in your name. Like they were sharing the gospel, they were talking about Jesus. But we're so prone to focus on the external, of what's coming out, and we may miss Jesus altogether if that is our test. Here's what's fascinating: as I thought about it this week, uh, you know, there are, there are many pastors, men of the cloth, if you will, who um, have been ordained, but but and doing the works of God, proclaiming him, maybe even doing mighty works, but didn't know him. And Martin Luther was a priest for years before he came to faith. The pastor and politician uh, and many other things, theologian Abraham Kuyper, he was a pastor for years before an elderly woman in in the church in which he was a pastor thought, you know, there's a chance he doesn't quite get the gospel of grace. And she sat him down and shared the gospel and led him to faith. I had an acquaintance when I lived in Virginia who shared the story with me where he had been the pastor of a church for many years and preaching or preparing for a sermon one week, he realized, I have never actually believed the gospel. And in a way, he led himself to faith in reading his word. Friends, I'm not trying to make light of it, but we will often in our lives, unfortunately and painfully, find people who make declarations of faith but never truly know God, and God never truly knows them. Here's kind of the litmus test that Jesus gives. is, is They're professing with their mouth, but they have never truly embraced Him from the heart. And, and the way that, that Jesus is saying, you can tell there is a true embracing from the heart, is there is a heartfelt obedience that comes out of them. Did you see that in verse 21? He says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. There's an obedience. There's a doing. And these people who had professed faith had actually proven that they weren't in the kingdom because it says in verse 25, lawlessness. Just a total disregard for God's word. One of my professors, Dan Doriani, he said this. He said, if we truly confess Jesus as Lord, we must also be willing to bend our will to his even if his will, uh, even if his directives seem unpleasant or foolish to us. The test of our loyalty, the test of our submission to the Lord, comes when his will crosses ours. We truly obey, we submit to God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or strange actions. D.A. Carson says this, he says, It is true, of course, that no one enters the kingdom because of their obedience. But it is equally true that no one enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that people are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a person's life inevitably results in obedience. Even at the end of Matthew, verses 28-10, where he sends his disciples out to make disciples, he says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now friends, this is getting heavy, right? Right? And it, this is hard. Here's a reality. I used this line last week to talk about how our obedience works with grace, and I use the phrase, um, "I am loved, therefore I obey." And that order is so important. But some sermons you're going to hear is, "I am loved, therefore I obey." But other sermons are going to be, "I am loved, therefore I obey." Justification and sanctification both need to be on the radar of the follower of Christ. And Christ calls us to obedience. And the beautiful part is is as we are captured by the heart of Christ and the mercy and grace He has shown us, then the fruit of our lives becomes heartfelt obedience because we're loving Him back. Obedience is God's love language. And how many of us don't want to love the people who we love the most the way they desire to be loved. Here's the fourth choice. And it's a choice of foundation. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And that's how Jesus ends His Sermon on the Mount. With this picture of a choice of foundations. So here's a picture. Uh, This is uh, a city in Mexico after uh, a catastrophic hurricane. And um, and, and this is a picture of, I think, a perfect picture of what it means to to build on a solid foundation. Uh, My mom uh, has a house in Virginia Beach, and uh, living there for a while, we actually got to see several houses go up. And you can actually see the difference before you, as we were living there, of the different ways people built their houses. Some built their houses like the one who's standing on solid foundations. They would bring in these pilings that seemed like a mile high in a crane, and they put it around it, and for days, this thing would just hammer these pilings deep into the sand. And it, it would take days, and you would feel the ground shaking the duration of that time. And then one of the other neighbors built a house, and it's right there on the water, and, and it was fascinating. We all knew the first hurricane that hits, that house is gone, because they laid like a couple of inches of foundation and built a house on it. There is no pilings, there's nothing to hold it up if those waves come. At the end of this sermon, Jesus is imploring, is begging, is is keeping before his people. He's saying, build well. Build on the right foundation. Build your lives on me. At the end, I believe he's saying, beware of fair weather building. You know, in good weather, every building plan looks sound. And just like that in our lives, every creed or philosophy of life seems to work when life is easy. But what Jesus is saying here is the storms will come. And He's saying when they do, the only foundation that will last will be me. It will not be the one you love the most. It will not be your children. It will not be the power that you have in whatever setting it is. It will not be your reputation. It will not be your bank account. It will not be your politician. It will not be your nation. The only thing that will withstand the storms of life is the one eternal one, Jesus Christ. And he's saying, build on me. He calls himself the rock a couple of times here, and and he basically tells us in verse 24 what building on him actually looks like. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. He's saying, don't just be hearers. Be doers. Be doers of what I've taught you. James, his brother, mentions this in James one twenty-two. He says, don't just be hearers of my word only. Be doers. Because if we stop at hearers, immediately when that storm rolls up in life, we will be destroyed. I've thought many times, boy, I ended that sermon really poorly. And... Um, you know, I was quite encouraged by how Jesus ends his sermon. And I'm not saying Jesus ended it poorly. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, but did you, did you hear what he said here at the end? His last words were, great was the fall of it. It crashed. And he just walks off the stage. Jesus is leaving an impression. He's saying, build on me, solid foundation, you will remain. Fail to do so, and beware, it comes crashing down. I thought a lot about this week, about what it it meant to wrestle through the Sermon on the Mount and wrestle through uh, what Jesus taught us. And, And it just encouraged me to call us as a church to labor in God's Word and wrestle with what it looks like to follow Him. Jen Wilkin had a quote I came across yesterday where she said, we must make a study of our God, what He loves, what He hates, how He speaks and acts. We cannot imitate or follow a God whose features and habits we have never learned. We must make a study of him if we want to become like him. We must seek his face. I think what Jen is saying is, don't drift. Don't drift through the Christian life. The Christian life requires choices. And in this passage, he calls us to choose the path that follows him, the way and the truth and the life. To hear his voice, His words, and to do them. And to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. To build our lives on the one who is trustworthy enough to hold every nail and board of our lives steady in the midst of its storms. Let me close this in prayer. <sighs> the Lord... Understandably, at the end of a sermon like this, there's a range of emotions and it feels heavy. Lord, I pray that, first off, I believe the language Jesus uses here in part is there to arouse His disciples and remind them not to drift, that there are choices to be made, that to not follow Him, to not follow You, to not... Pursue your righteousness and be obedient to you. Lord, might just be a fruit of us walking a path of destruction. And so, Lord, if we find ourselves there drifting, thinking this is not a serious endeavor that you've called us to to follow you, would you arouse our sleepy hearts to your call on our lives? But, Father, for those who feel crushed under the law, under obedience, recognizing that it is impossible for us to keep it perfectly. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, you would say, you're right. And that's why I say, I am the only one who can fulfill the law. Follow me. You are poor in spirit. Come to my riches of grace that are offered to you. So, Father, if we are finding ourselves crushed, I pray that you will cause us to run into your arms of grace. And Father, help us as a church to see these two things uh, coming together instead of being mutually exclusive or enemies of one another. We love you, Lord. Thanks for this time. In your name, amen.